0: A couple of years ago, Carolyn and I were driving uh, cross-country, and we were listening to tapes, as we often do, and happened upon a tape by Dr. Mary Wilder. Uh, we knew her as uh, Tim Cole's aunt. Uh, she is a medical missionary to Pakistan and now on leave to, um, uh, the, uh, to Western Conservative Baptist Seminary in Portland. She's an assistant professor of missions there. Uh, we chuckled our way through the uh, tape, not simply because she's humorous, because she, is, uh, because she is that, but also because of her no-nonsense approach to uh, life and just the way she went about handling the text that uh, she was teaching on that particular day. She was addressing the uh, seminary student body. And in the course of her talk, she uh, she mentioned a blood drive that was being conducted on campus, and she encouraged those uh, stout young men to give their blood, and uh, told of an experience that she had uh, before doing surgery where she gave blood to a patient. There were so short of whole blood, she gave her blood to a patient, and she got down off the table and did the surgery on the patient that she had given her blood to. And uh, we just, uh, as we listened to that tape, came to appreciate her more and more. Carolyn, through the Women's Ministries, asked her to come this weekend. She spoke to... Uh, Single women's Fellowship Saturday morning and the DeSalt uh, Friday night and they were greatly enriched by her teaching. I asked her to, to come and and tell us a little bit, teach us a little bit about her own single state and her satisfaction in it. I wish she'd been here last week when we were talking about First Corinthians 7. She has a lot to uh, impart to us. Dr. Wilder. Thank you.
1: It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's uh... After speaking to two groups of singles here, uh, I'm glad to see that there are some doubles, too. uh, (laughs) And it's my privilege to talk to you a bit about uh, how to be happy though single. I would remind you, though, that uh, the single state is not totally wretched, just as the married state is not totally happy. And uh, as Solomon said, each heart knows its own bitterness. And truly, there are things, in uh, whether married or single, that are less than perfect. So I just want you to know that uh, when somebody comes up to you and says, why isn't a wonderful person like you married, that marriage is not the definition of wonderful. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so just remember that. Uh, <laughs> the pastor spoke last week on uh, 1 Corinthians 7. I had the privilege of listening to that tape as part of my homework. And uh, some of what I, I will say today, I hope that you will see in the light of that. There are problems attendant to being single One is society's expectations. You know, why aren't you married? As though you're a failure, as though uh, you're not quite with it. If you were, you would be married. In Pakistan, we have a particular problem in that marriage is universal. Everyone is married, whether they should be or not. And uh, marriages are all arranged by the families, so when people over there say, saying, why aren't you married? I just smile sweetly and say, my father hasn't made the arrangements yet. <laughs> and that, uh, that puts all the shame on him, you see. <laughs> but uh, even in this society, people look at you with a question. Why aren't you married? As though... Uh, that were the definition of being normal, being human. And then there is the problem that uh, people think you haven't quite arrived if you're not married. Um, I was speaking to one of our missionary colleagues in Pakistan, and she uh, mentioned some problem in their family regarding uh, the the children. And she said, "I don't know why I'm telling you this. You wouldn't understand anyway because you're not married." I said, Polly, I'm not married, but I am a child. I do have parents. I'm the intimate observer of a number of families who come to me for advice and medical and spiritual counsel and uh, don't talk to me about not knowing family relationships because I'm not married. She said, that's right. I hadn't thought of that. I said, Polly, you think of that. Um... There are problems of uh, loneliness. And yet I would remind you that uh, loneliness is not only a condition of being single. Some of the loneliest people I've known are those who are married and their spouse does not fulfill the obligations of a spouse. There is not the love and accord and affirmation and friendship. And uh, they are even more lonely than uh, those of us who are single. But loneliness is a problem. The lack of permanence of significant relationships is a problem. You just cultivate a friendship and that friend is transferred. You just get close to a family and you're transferred or they move or something. And there's no one who is yours. There's the, uh, the terrible temptation as a single to fall into selfishness. Me, mine, my schedule, my program, my things. And yet the the antidote to these problems is to understand yourself and to understand others, to understand uh, the advantages of being single. You heard about some of them last week. Do you really praise God for what a privilege it is to be able to attend upon the Lord without distraction? To come home and, uh, not be distracted by, by the kids, the problems of the house, but have a block of time to dedicate to the, to the study of God's Word? You're free to serve in the body of the fellowship here in a number of ways that wouldn't be possible if you had the responsibilities of a family. And you need to capitalize that on that. You need to see singleness as a part of God's plan for you, not a failure, not as a half-human option that you'll be totally human when you're married. Because who would say of the Lord Jesus that he led less than a full Life dedicated to God. Who would say that he was only half human and yet Jesus Christ was not married? And it's our privilege to identify with him and his singleness as he lived out the life that God had appointed for him. And, uh, you too can do that. And I would beseech you not to, uh, not to put your life on hold and say, well, when I get married, then, I'll be all that the Lord intended me to be, and then I'll I'll serve, then, and then. It's here, it's now, that uh, we're called to know him, to follow him, to serve him. And God was not caught by surprise at the fact that you're single. This is, for now at least, a part of his good plan for you, for me. So let's enter into that with all of the... uh, the gusto, all of the, uh, enthusiasm that we have because God is in it. We are living out His plan. No matter who did it to us, my father didn't arrange it, uh, maybe your spouse left, maybe death intervened, uh, and you're single again, uh, whatever the circumstances, God is not unaware of how you've come to be single. And I would uh, challenge you to cultivate friends of all kinds, all ages, all statuses in life. Cultivate your relationship with God and determine that you will not succumb to selfishness, boredom, loneliness, but you will reach out to others. Now, it's in the body of the family of God, the body of believers, that the singles' needs for love, affirmation, communion, fellowship, it's here that those needs are best met. And I would challenge you not to look elsewhere except to the family of God for relationships that will be strengthening, challenging, supporting, and I would challenge you as families, adopt a single. Uh, have, uh, have an old maid aunt for your family if so be you're not fortunate enough to have one. And, uh, schedule your church activities around people, not around marital statuses. Feel free to, uh, to say to that single, come on and, and go to the, come on and go camping with us at the uh, family camp. Uh, share your kids. Let them be loved and, and cherished by someone in in your extended family, in, in God's family. And indeed, that's uh, the joy of my life, not having had any children, although I've delivered I don't know how many thousands of kids, but uh, the joy of my life for my nieces and nephews and their kids. And that's why I was so glad to come over here this weekend. This wasn't just another speaking engagement of which life is full, but uh, I got to come and see Tim and Jan and Jason and Jody, and and that's fun. So uh, just as the extended family can meet needs in the lives of people, you be that extended family for the singles in your group. Adopt a single. It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for them and for you too. Remembering that, yes, we're all lonely. Yes, we're all selfish. Yes, these problems uh, are not just in the single state, but God has promised his special grace to those who are alone. And concentrate on that. And those of you who are single, it's your choice, whether you wallow in it and have a huge pity party all of life, or whether you rejoice with God in what he's doing in your life, and rejoicing in the fact that uh, your life is concerned with how you may please the Lord, how you may be holy both in body and in spirit, and how you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. So do that. Rejoice and be alive to who you are and to what God has called you to.
0: Now let's turn uh, from the single state again to the married state. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. This is a tough text. There are some real difficulties in this uh, section of scripture, and in my opinion, there is a great deal of nonsense that's uh, taught and believed about these verses, and uh, I hope I don't add to the uh, sum total of nonsense. Paul says we should not go beyond what is written, and I think the problem with a lot of our interpretation of scripture is simply that we go beyond what what is specified in the text. Where Scripture is silent, we must be silent. Where God has spoken, then what we speak is the Word of God. We simply must not go beyond what's here. Uh, there is this thing we've talked about before that uh, we describe as folk Christianity, this odd mix of, uh, of biblical truth and personal opinion, uh, which we've invested with divine authority. This is the sort of thing we need to be, uh, be watchful of as we approach a text like this. And let the text speak for itself, rather than impose upon it the interpretations that, uh, that we've heard. And I invite you to do that. Don't, uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, you, uh, you read the text and consider it for yourself. Now I'd like to read the first six verses of chapter 3. Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Uh, I have a friend who declares that his wife calls him Lord also, except uh, she pronounces it lard. <laughs> uh, let me give you something of the backdrop of this uh, of this passage, because we need to understand it in its context. The overarching theme of 1 Peter is ultimate salvation. Uh, Paul is looking forward to our destiny, which is heaven. That's our home. We're, we're aliens. We're we're transients. We're passing through. Our real, our real home is heaven, and that's the perspective that enables us to be tough when things are tough. the uh, The secondary theme of the book is that wherever we go in this world, uh, we need to give a gracious Christian Christian witness to Christ. To use Paul's metaphor, we need to leave behind the fragrance of Christ. There, there is that lingering unforgettable aroma that comes from Christ-likeness that people can't get out of their minds. It's like wind song. It, it sticks in, in, their, in their minds. And that's the kind of witness that we ought to leave behind. And it's characterized, as Peter tells us in this book, by a, a spirit of surrender, a submissive spirit. Uh, he talks about various realms of, of authority, various uh, legitimate spheres of authority, civil government. And he says you, you need to submit to government, men and women. Submission, surrender is not enjoined just upon women, but on men as well. We ought to be characterized by that, that gracious spirit of surrender. Uh, he says to be uh, submissive to the, to the federal authorities, the local authorities, And uh, you have to remember the infamous Nero was on the throne at the time this this book was was written. Even unjust, harsh, capricious authority needs to be submitted to by men and women. And then he describes another uh, legitimate sphere of authority, that of slaves and masters. Masters have authority over slaves. And slaves, he said, ought to be submissive even to harsh, unjust masters. And then the third realm of responsibility, Peter says, is that of the home. Wives, in the same way, are to be submissive to to their husbands. Now, this phrase, in the same way, takes us back into the preceding context, and it refers to our Lord. Uh, In verse 21, we're told to this, that is, to be a suffering servant. We were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps he uses a very interesting very colorful uh uh term this uh, word example means to write under something in those days pedagogues would uh, would write uh, on the on the chalkboard or whatever substance they used and uh, those that were learning to learning the script would write underneath that uh that uh, those letters and follow the form of the letters precisely, That that's what he's saying that we need to follow our Lord exactly in the pattern that he said and he was the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant he quotes Isaiah 53 9, he committed no sin no deceit was in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate, he didn't say just wait just wait until I come into my own and then I'll get you guys no, he, he, did, he didn't do that, see. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, so, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned, you've been brought back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, the point that he's making is that through his willingness to suffer injustice and to submit to even to unjust authority, he brought us to God. He did the ultimately good thing. He saved us, you see. So there's something very redemptive, something very good about being a suffering servant. Now, he argues from our Lord's example to the example of, of a woman in a home where her husband is not a believer. This is the concern that Peter has in the back of his mind. Same sort of thing we talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. What should a woman do if she's married to a, to a non-Christian? Should she jettison her marriage? Should she bail out? Should she uh, look for a Christian mate? Paul says, no, no, maintain the status quo. Remain in those circumstances with God. That's 1 Corinthians 7. First Peter 3 assumes that you're maintaining the status quo. You're living with an unbelieving husband. How should you handle that relationship? What, what should you do? Well, do it, he says, as our Lord did it. Likewise, just as our Lord did it. And then he spells out a twofold responsibility that, that women have in their homes. Their duty is submission, and their beauty is an inner beauty. A grace. That attracts men to Christ. Now, the issue here is how you win your man to Christ. There are no promises, no absolute promises here. That if that if one behaves this way, that your husband will be one. the The mood of the verb suggests probability or possibility. The point that Peter is making is that if if he is to be one at all, he will be one this way. This is the way you're you're to go about it. There is a duty, and there is a beauty that you uh, maintain. Now, I, I, I just must say that Scripture makes it very clear that husbands are designated as the heads of their, of their households. That's the way God has set things up. And that's why this, uh, this command is here, to be submissive both to non-Christian husbands and to Christian husbands. Now, there's a reason for this. I've said before that God speaks to us through similes and through metaphors. There's very little of what we might think of as abstract theology in the Bible. He pictures and stories the good news to us. And one of the ways he does this is through the home. You look at the home and you see something of God's love for his people. The husband in the home represents God, and the bride, the the wife in the home, represents the church. And uh, anyone in the world ought to be able to to look at our homes and say that's that's the way God loves his church. The, The way that man cares for his wife, the way he loves her, the way he gives, the way he serves, his relentless pursuit of her, his willingness to woo her 24 hours a day uh to serve her to not think in terms of of satisfying his own needs but the way he looks for ways to meet to meet her needs you see that's the pattern uh, if you want to see the pattern of leadership that our lord himself established established it's that of a of a servant someone gird, girded about with a towel on his hands and knees with a basin and a bar of soap washing feet you're not insisting that his feet be washed and that he be served but that uh, but that he, that he serve his, his bride. Now, on the other hand, the woman in the relationship represents the church, her willingness to follow, her responsiveness to that love, her faithfulness, her loyalty, her submission to, to his leadership. Now, that's the norm. That's the way things ought to be. But uh, Peter is talking about something else. And perhaps you're facing something else in, in your relationship with your husband. You say, that's all well and good. That's a a healthy home. But my husband is a turkey. He is a Cretan. He is the most honorary man you ever met. How in the world can I submit to him? Well, Peter says, you get to follow the example of Christ. It would be nice if your husband set the example of Christ. But he's not doing it. So you get to be like Christ in the family. What a privilege. What a glory. What dignity there is in, 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 that, in, that, in that place, you see. Earlier, in, in chapter 2, Peter has said, Live as free men. Recognize that you, you, you have autonomy. You have freedom. You're not victimized by anyone. And yet you can choose to take the role of a suffering servant in your home, just as our Lord chose to do so, and the result will be something ultimately redemptive. You may win your husband. He's saying. Now, that's her duty, submission. It's clearly spelled out. Now, that's uh, what submission is. Let me tell you what submission is not, because here's where I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding on this on this passage. In the first place, your husband does not have absolute and final authority over you. That belongs to God and to God alone. No one would teach, for example, that civil government is the ab- absolute authority. And the apostles never looked at, at the government of their time in that way. They were submissive to, to that authority to the extent that they could be, but there were times when they had to say, I'm sorry, sir, I cannot do what you're asking me to do, because to do so is to act contrary to the will of God. One uh, specific example in the book of Acts were the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin said, you can no longer preach. The apostles said, I'm sorry, we have to preach. We've been commanded by our Lord to preach. And they, uh, they took the consequences of their action. They were respectful in, uh, in their civil disobedience, but they recognized that they had a higher authority. They had to serve God rather than men. The same would be true if you were, uh, uh, if you were a slave and your master asked you to, to do something that was illegal or immoral. You were asked to drive the getaway horse or something if he was a highway bandit. Uh, You'd have to say, I'm sorry, sir, I I can't do that. I can't do that. I have a higher authority, you see. Now, uh, uh, April 15th is rolling around, income income tax days are, you know, it's drawing nigh. The heat's on and your husband is probably working feverishly to to compute your income tax, or perhaps you are. Uh, If your husband is doing it, there's a possibility he may be doing something dishonest. And you will be asked to sign. And the question is, should I sign? No, no. Not if he's doing something dishonest. Because if you go back into the preceding context, Jesus did not lie. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And uh, if you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they conspired together. And uh, uh, Sapphira was judged guilty, just as Ananias, because she went along with him. And so, if your husband is insisting that you do something that is contrary to the will of God, you can say no. Do it gently. Do it respectfully. But you can say no. He is not your absolute authority. There is a higher authority, and it is God himself. Now, the second thing I, I would say is that you can speak up. When, when Peter says... They will be won over without a word. He does not mean absolute silence. The word that he's talking about is the word that's described earlier when we're told that Jesus didn't retaliate. You're not to demean your husband. You're not to degrade your husband. You're not to shout and yell and scream. And It's those sorts of words that he's talking about. But there's certainly nothing wrong with letting your husband know that you have some deep and desperate needs. Let him know. He needs to know. That's just a simple matter of communication. Tell him what you long for. That's all right. Now, what Peter is saying is that that they will be won over by the behavior of the wife, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But he's not saying that that, uh, that you never say anything. You don't have to be absolutely silent. He's just saying that your primary witness is the kind of person that you are. Now, what you're saying. I, all of us, men and women, have problems with our tongues. I don't think women have a premium on that particular problem. You know, We all tend to talk too much. We're all too wordy. We count on words rather than our behavior. That's why Paul says in one of his letters, the kingdom of God does not come through words. It comes through power. In other words, God, uh, you know, if we're depending upon our words, we're, we're counting on something that's woefully inadequate. We need to depend upon the, the Spirit of God to change the lives of people. Uh, There's nothing wrong with giving an explicit Christian witness, but the most powerful witness that we can give comes through the kind of people that we are, the sort of behavior that we maintain, you see. Uh, James has something to say about talking too much. We ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak. Proverbs say a lot about the tendency of both men and women to use too many words. All Peter is saying is don't be wordy. You don't have to say too much. And don't deride or degrade or belittle or demean your husband. Don't diminish him in your talk, you see. You can talk, but uh, don't talk too much. And uh, don't, uh, don't deride him. Don't use the wrong kind of words, because our Lord didn't, you see. Now, the third thing I would say is that you do not have to submit to violence. Submission does not mean that you have to permit your husband to verbally abuse you or physically abuse you. You can say... To your husband, again, graciously and with respect, you can say, I am a human being. We are heirs together of life. Uh, No one has the right to treat a human being that way. It's not right. And uh, for myself, it's just an opinion, but I I would think that uh, if you're being battered by your husband, you have every right in the world, every legal right, and every biblical right to say, if you do that to me again, I'm going to call the police. The police in this city will not permit that sort of thing to go on. They're getting more and more sensitive to this this sort of this sort of mistreatment of women. It is not right. And in fact, I believe that if if one permits it to go on, you're simply enabling your husband in his sin. Uh, Agatha Christie, in one of her books, has has uh, Hilda Lee, who is the uh, school uh, marm. Put it this way. There is a kind of meekness or submission that brings out the worst in a man. Whereas that same man, faced by spirit and determination, might be a different creature. Now, all I want to say is that Peter is not saying that submission means you have to submit to physical or... Or verbal abuse. You don't have to. That's not what he's asking you to do. Nor is he saying that you must uh, submit and uh, to anything your husband asks you to do that is clearly contrary to the will of God. But he is saying that short of disobedience to Christ, that submission is enjoined upon you. And you have to leave the circumstances of your life in the hands of God. You do what Jesus did. You entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Uh, your husband is not bigger than God. God is well able to take care of you. He's well able to protect you spiritually. He doesn't promise that uh, your family won't go into bankruptcy. You know, If your husband comes home with the idea of uh, building a pizza factory in Peru and he's going to take all of the... Equity in your house, and and uh, use it for a project like that. You can say, "Honey, I don't think that makes any sense at all." Let's talk to somebody who, who might uh, you know, could give us some counsel and that sort of thing. But if your husband insists on doing it, then you have to entrust yourself into the hands of God. And Peter says, "That's your beauty. That's your beauty." You notice how he puts it. They will be won over without talk by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, he's not saying there's anything wrong with outward adornment. God doesn't put any premium on looking tacky. That's not the point. He's just saying that your real beauty comes from within, and it's lasting beauty. The real beauty that a woman possesses, the enduring beauty that does not fade, is an inner beauty of character. Uh, there's a proverb. One of the proverbs uh, talks about the incongruity of a, of a beautiful woman who has an ugly character. It says it's like a, it's like a pig with a, with a gold ring in its snout. And you look at that, and you think there's something terribly out of joint here. This this is incongruous, and 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 there, you know it's, that's right, that's right. You look at a woman, and she is beautifully turned out, coiffured, and, and yet there's an ugliness within, and the, the the beauty fades, the outward beauty fades rapidly. Your true beauty, Peter says, is that inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, let me say in the moments I have left that that, those two traits are not exclusively female traits. Often, that's the way this text is taught that women are to be gentle and quiet and meek, and men are to be boisterous and rowdy, and they can be gorilla like, and that's all right. You know, you can run roughshod over people and talk tough and everything else, and and that's acceptable for men, but women have to be meek and quiet, gentle. Let me explain that both of these terms are used for both men and women in the New Testament. The word that's translated gentle here is actually the word for meek. It means non-defensive, non-retaliatory. And it's used of our Lord. He said of himself in Matthew 11, I am gentle and humble in spirit. That's our Lord, the manliest man that ever lived. And he says of himself, I'm gentle. In other words, he's non-defensive doesn't try to defend himself against insults, for example. Uh, It's the same word that's used in uh, Matthew 21 when he's described coming into Jerusalem meek and riding on a donkey. And it's the word that's used in the uh, Beatitude in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the non-defensive. For they'll inherit the earth. You don't have to protect yourself. Uh, God will protect you. He has 10,000 legions of angels with which he can protect you. Uh, and in the end, you get it all. That's that's the point. If you don't fight for yourself, God will fight for you, and you get it all. You inherit you inherit uh, the world. Uh, so gentleness is not something that's that's solely the the uh, requirement of a of a woman. That, that's a man's assignment as well. The other term, quiet, doesn't mean silent. It means tranquil, composed, self control. Um. It's used. Paul uses it in Second Thessalonians to refer to certain men who were idle and and were not working, and they were anxious and complaining and upset and disturbed. and And, and the NIV translates the verb form of this noun "settle down." He says, "I, I tell you, settle down and go to work." Uh, and it's that word "settle down" that is based on the same root. It, it simply means to be tranquil and calm and cool under pressure and. And poise, there's an enormous amount of dignity in that word. You can see it in our Lord when he stands before the Sanhedrin or when he stands at the foot of the cross. There's that dignity and poise that characterized him. Peter says, that's what's going to get through. It's going to do it. That's an unfading beauty, that non-defensive and tranquil spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. You know, we should not think that women somehow constitutionally are... Are made uh, made up so that they fall apart at the at the least uh, you know at the, whenever there's pressure. What Peter is calling for is just the opposite. Someone who has strength and dignity, confidence in God in in the face of trial, and that is exactly the point. It's confidence in God. You see, the only way you can do that is to put your hope in God. You notice how Peter puts it. This is the way. The holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and, and called him her Lord. Now, if you know anything about Abraham, you know what a schmuck he was as a husband. Uh, he was an a exhibit A of, of, of faith, a wonderful example of faith. But when it came to husbanding, he, he did not hit the long ball. And yet, Sarah respected him. She she called him Lord. Sir is the idea. She she recognized him as the head of, of her household. And he did some terrible things to her. He jeopardized her life by putting her in the harem of two foreign kings. Uh, she was not, I'm sure, aware that there was anything sinful about that. This was pre-law. Uh God's will was not clearly spelled out. It was customary in those days to form political alliances by giving your sister or your daughter or your wife to someone else. That was that was done. So it doesn't seem that she was necessarily disobedient. She was simply doing what she thought was best at the time. Looking back, we can see that that what Sarah did uh, from our standpoint and with our underst- with our revelation and our understanding of the law was, was sinful but at the time she was simply acknowledging Abraham's uh, his Lordship. Uh, by the way, when this particular reference to Abraham as Lord is not taken from one of those situations, it's taken from another. So even if Sarah was wrong in doing what she was doing, the point that Peter is making is that despite Abraham's ineptitude as a husband, she simply had that spirit of submission, she was willing to, to submit to him. And the only reason she could do it is because she put her hope in God. She entrusted herself to the one who judges justly. She didn't wait for her husband to come through. She entrusted herself to God. She realized that God was bigger than Abraham. See, Carolyn was telling me this last week about a Peanuts segment that she saw. Uh, Lucy was out in center field. Someone lofted a fly ball out in her direction, and she says, I hope I catch it, I hope I catch it, I hope I catch it. And then she dropped it. And she says, hope got in my eyes. <laughs> and uh, Carolyn made the observation that, that if we hope in anything other than God, we're going to drop the ball. And that's 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 exactly the truth that Peter is trying to get get across to us in this text. If we hope in anything other than God, then... W- we're going to have real problems. We're going to be anxious. We're going to be upset and distressed. And we're going to lose that capacity to, to be gentle, non-defensive, and to be tranquil. We'll lose our strength and and dignity. Now this is what this is what Peter calls fear. You are her daughters if you do what is right. And do not give way to fear. Uh, he is he's drawing from a a proverb and I'd like to have you turn there with me if you will it's Proverbs, uh Proverbs 3 uh, I'm not going to have time to talk about verse 7 we'll have to uh, carry that over on to another occasion but I want to leave you with this uh, final word This is the, this is the text the Old Testament text that Peter has in the back of his mind when he says don't be afraid with any fear Proverbs 3, 21. My son, preserve sound judgment. In other words, be thoughtful. Be rational. Be reasonable. Think things through. Think about the truth. Center your thoughts upon the wisdom that's from above. Preserve sound judgment and discernment. The, uh, the word means uh, to consider something deeply. Ponder these truths. Do not let them out of your sight. That is wisdom and understanding and knowledge, the wisdom of God that's come down to to earth. They will be life for you. Uh, The wisdom of this world is devoid of life and energy, but I'm getting some feedback here. But the the wisdom that's from above uh, is life itself. And an ornament to grace your neck. In other words, it not only is uh, provides you with something inward, but it'll make you more beautiful. Uh, then he says you'll go on your way in safety, and you know, that is in confidence. Uh, your foot will not stumble; you won't get yourself into trouble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. You'll you'll sleep much better. Uh, you will have no fear of fear absolutely nothing to fear you will not give way to fear that's the line that that peter quotes from the septuagint from the greek translation of this proverb have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked and here's the bottom line for the lord the lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being snared in other words no one will will trip you up. Now he's not promising that your husband will not run you into bankruptcy. He will not he's not promising that things will go well with you financially, or that your marriage is going to be turned around, or that your husband will even be one to Christ. But the point is you you will be protected. You will grow as one of, of God's children. You, you will bear more and more of His likeness wherever you go, and your eternal destiny is secure. One of these days, He's going to come back to receive you to Himself, or He's going to, or we're going to go to see Him. But in any case, our destiny, our salvation is sure. You're in good hands. See. Now, uh, what should you do? Well, if you're faced with this uh, difficult situation, you have an unbelieving husband. Peter says your duty is submission. The same submission that uh, our Lord himself exhibited when he faced injustice. He didn't revile. He was the suffering servant. And he brought salvation to the world through that submissive spirit. The same, he says, should characterize you. That's your beauty, he says. That's your attractiveness. It's that inner beauty that uh, is characterized by a tranquil and calm and non-defensive spirit. And that comes to us, he says, as a result of our confidence in God. Uh, Men will always disappoint you, but God himself will satisfy you. That's your confidence. Let's, uh, Let's pray, shall we? Let's stand together. And ask again that God will strengthen us to obey. Lord, uh, we as men want to be examples of your gracious, relentless love. We want to be filled and flooded with your Spirit. We want to have uh, what it what we need in order to be the kind of men that you've called us to be help us lord to uh, to be uh, a living display uh of your love and we pray for the women among us especially those that uh, whose husbands are not exhibiting this kind of, of of love we ask that you would fill them and flood them with your presence we ask that you would provide the assurance of your presence. We pray that you would surround them with your love. We ask that their that their sense of identity, their worth and significance would come as a result of their relationship to you. Enable them, Lord, in in every circumstance, even the most troublesome circumstances, to be poised and to be calm, and to exhibit the attributes of our Lord Jesus. Help them to make visible our invisible Christ wherever uh, in whatever circumstances they find themselves and help us lord as as a body of believers to encourage one another uh, in in these matters help us to to support by prayer and encourage by our words and by our presence and our continuing love those that uh, that are struggling in their marriages we thank you for this word of truth help us to see it as it is your truth given to us for our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.